There's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Hello, but you're very welcome to RTE's Your Politics podcast. Sinead Spain and Tommy West Meskel here with me here in studio. We've all recovered from watching the football and the brilliant Irish women. Uh, but the big political news of the week um, in many ways overshadowed in a lot of the headlines uh, by the run-up to the women's uh, first game. It was the Taoiseach's surprise visit to Ukraine and meeting with President Zelensky. And with him um, were Paul Cunningham, our political correspondent, and cameraman Mark Ronahan. And Paul is now on the journey back. You're at, actually on the line, um, and you're actually at the airport, Paul, is that right? Yes, in Krakow in southern Poland after an overnight train from uh, Kiev. So tell us about that, because I saw your tweet that you posted just as you got back over the border, comparing this visit to your last. Yeah, it was a, a very calm visit to Kiev. Um, temperatures around late 20s and people out on the streets, cafe culture, um, looks like any other European city. But just a, pro- a few hours before we arrived, the um, air raid sirens had gone off. There was a danger of attack from Russian drones and everyone had run underneath um, the ground down into the bunkers to protect themselves. And that's the oscillation that happens in Kyiv. It seems normal at one stage, but it is a city constantly under at least the threat of attack, if not attack itself. Now, this unannounced visit, there's a lot of security, there's a lot of preparation, there's a lot of secrecy. Tell me about the run-up. Yeah, there is an awful lot of secrecy, and that's for good reason, that um, they want to ensure that um, President Zelensky of Ukraine is not going to be endangered by a huge publicity that an international leader is going to be landing and um, no, whoever wants to target him is going to know where he is. So there was a degree of secrecy about this and so therefore we weren't broadcasting before the meeting happened that the meeting was about to happen and then once the meeting was concluded then the international media and Ukrainian media were reporting that as a fact. One interesting little story, there was on Twitter um, a plane watcher who identified that the government jet had landed in southeastern Poland and was suspecting that there could be a trip um, by the Taoiseach to Ukraine on the cards. But that tweet wasn't picked up by anyone, and so it remained a secret. And getting to Kiev, how does that work? It can be done a number of different ways. It can be done by road, it can be done by um, rail. It depends on um, which way uh, the particular security from um, Ukraine has been organised. In our case, it was going by an overnight train, and leaving at nine, arriving there in the morning, and then the second you arrive, then off you go like a bullet on a, on a very packed agenda. And talk to us about that agenda from the Ukrainians' point of view. What were they looking for from this visit from Taoiseach Leo Varadkar? I think it's in their interest to show that European leaders haven't forgotten Ukraine, that they continue to arrive, that they continue to commit themselves to support um, the government in Kyiv for as long as the war um, of Russian aggression continues. And that was exactly what um, Leo Varadko was there to do. It was a symbolic visit. He did announce an additional €5 million from the Irish state on top of €100 million, which has already been given. But I think the importance was that symbolic stand in full view of international media, the Taoiseach and the president of Ukraine standing together and recommitting to the values, one, that Ukraine will be supported, 
to the, the perpetrators of um, atrocities in places like Bucha in northern Kiev would be um, rigorously followed up and that there would be ongoing support when it came to Ukraine's accession into the European Union. President Zelensky saying he wants those talks to begin um, before the year is out. What's the security like then again around President Zelensky himself? Well, we would know because he walked into a room, there was an awful lot of security guards around him and then he was gone. So we didn't actually see the apparatus around him. All I could say was that when we were with the Taoiseach, there was a, I don't know, a cavalcade of around 15 vehicles. Most of them were both um, the Guardies, Emergency Response Unit and, and the Ukrainian military forces. And that was tightly guarded. And any time we went down a street, the entire street was cleared to ensure that there wasn't anyone going to be um, within, you know, uh, posing any danger to it. So very tightly run, very swift, no delays whatsoever, and just moving between the set agenda. And there was also a visit to Bucha, wasn't there? And that's where it began. And um, indeed, President Zelensky said he was um, very happy that the Taoiseach had started off his visit. He spent two hours in the northern suburbs of Kiev, and that was for a key reason, because when the Russian forces engaged at the end of February of last year, the places where they came to were Erpin and Bucha in that drive to take over the capital. And in those places in Bucha, there was a massacre of civilians. In Erpin, there was very fierce fighting. And so um, what Leo Varadkar, in his own words, got to see um, with his own eyes the horror of the Russian military invasion. And he said that was something which informed him and informed the Irish government when it came to its policy vis-a-vis supporting Ukraine. One other thing I noticed about the visit, um, the Ukrainian acting company that were staged um, a perform- uh, a run of Brian Friel's translations here at the Abbey recently. Um, the Taoiseach visited the theatre. There was a performance of that going ahead in Kiev last night. And he also met that actor who was unfortunately uh, attacked uh, on the street outside the theatre when he was here. But back at home, um, Tommy Meskel housing, it hasn't gone away, you know, and the ESRI produced some interesting data. Interesting data today showing, I suppose, what we already knew and suspected, but confirming a, a, a huge fall off in home ownership for those aged over 40. So what the ESRI has found is that uh, adults aged over 40, 80 percent uh, own their own home. Uh, under 40, it's around a third. Um, although it also shows a mixed bag, bag in terms of affordability and that Ireland actually doesn't fare too badly in a European context when it comes to the amount that people spend on housing on a monthly basis. Ireland isn't the worst. In fact, there's only five countries that are worse. But we're skewed in the middle. If you're in the middle, you, you do worse off then. Yes. Yeah. Ono Bryn was speaking about this just this afternoon before we came in here uh, of Sinn Féin and Kino Callan as well on, on the radio this morning on Morning Ireland, making the point that the that HAP is skewing this somewhat. That's the housing assistance payment. Yeah. Yes. If you're on a lower income, you can qualify for HAP. It'll help you uh, afford your rent. If you're a middle to higher income earner, uh, you won't qualify. And I suppose the the report is showing uh, that for those that that don't qualify, then a much larger chunk of their monthly income is being spent on housing. Mm -hmm. For those that do qualify, it's perhaps a little easier, uh, but showing that overall there's still significant challenges and it's younger people that are bearing the brunt. Opposition presumably blaming the government uh, in all of this. And what's the government saying about this data? 
Well, I think the government would point to the fact that the answer to this is supply. And, and just today, the commencement figures commencement figures for the month of June were published, uh, and they're up 25% compared to the same period last year. In the first six months of this year, they're up 10%. So they would point to that as progress, presumably. But the likes of Sinn Féin that we just mentioned there, Ono Brin, uh, they would say that when it comes to affordable and social housing, uh, delivery is just not where it should be. And really, until people can find that homes are affordable, uh, then there's still a lot of progress that still still has to be made. Sinead, I'm going to talk to you about the Boundary Commission report in a moment. But before we do, one other issue that's uh, very much occupying uh, government at the moment uh, domestically is health, health spending and this perennial question uh, of health being underfunded or overspent because it's happening again this year. Yeah, so Pascal Donoghue is going to be discussing this with Stephen Donnelly uh, over the coming months, months uh, one presumes, uh, and health is overspending. And th- there's various reasons for this. Uh, the government needs to look at ways that they can pull back on this. I suppose in the context, though, of booming exchequer returns, the idea that you're going to pull back from different departments in health, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think that's going to be an easy one to sell. Now, it's very quiet here around Leinster House. The TDs tell us they're all working away in their constituencies. Beavering away, yeah. Beavering away. They'll all have an eye on the budget preparations as well. Uh, But one thing that will be, I think, required reading for nearly every member of the Erechthus and every would-be member of the Erechthus is going to be the long-awaited report on the revision of constituency boundaries. And you've been looking at the submissions they've been getting. First of all, tell us what it is and why it's happening. So basically, uh, the population is growing, the population is changing. We need to have one TD for every twenty to 30,000 people in the country. We're now a country of 5 million people, so we need some more TDs. Who knew? And the government has decided that we should have between 11 and 21 new TDs the next time we go to a general election. So this boundary commission or electoral commission has been set up. Their job is to look at how many TDs, should it be the 11, should it be the 21 or where in between should it be? And then where should they be elected? So what should the constituencies look like and what should they be made up of? And one of the things they're trying to do is not just do it for this next election that we will have potentially next year or certainly the year after, but also to try and future-proof it, to build in a little bit of flexibility because it is, I suppose, confusing and it's not ideal if you're changing your constituencies all the time. So to future-proof it in some way. So people could make submissions. The submissions are now closed, but there was more than 500 submissions. A lot of 500? More than 500. That's a lot of, you know, and there was big, massive, um, overarching submissions from each of the main political parties. Then there were individual submissions from various different core decanthers, different members of political parties. But then there were tallymen, there were sports clubs, there were just ordinary citizens. political watchers, yeah. ordinary citizens who have an interest in politics making their submissions. And really, they vary, you know, the kind of things that they're saying. I think everybody agrees with the, the numbers, Let's, but it's where do the boundaries lie? That is the biggest yeah. challenge for the Commission. Because what would be very clean would be if you live in a county like Kildare or Meath or wherever or Mayo, that you would have your county Your county is the constituency. It makes things very clean. It makes things very simple. People are identify with their county. They identify with their community. And so they feel a sort of an affinity. Um, But then you have areas where there are certain parts of the population who are locked out. So if you take, say, Sligo Leitrim, it includes parts of South Donegal. So Bundoran is actually part of that. There's also parts of of Mayo are part of it. And those people feel 
to a degree disenfranchised, that mm-hmm. they're not part of, they don't even get their county name as mm. part of the constituency. So that's the challenge. That's the challenge in terms of geography. And then also whatever way the boundaries are set and whatever number of TDs is allocated to each constituency, that can have a huge bearing on people's chances of winning seats. It absolutely can, whether you're a three-seater, a four-seater or a five-seater. Interesting, there was one area where Sinn Féin, Labour and People Before Profit all agreed was that the Commission should have been allowed to look at six-seaters. They weren't allowed to look at six-seater constituencies, but they felt that they should have been allowed to because the bigger constituencies where you have more seats, the five-seaters, if you're a smaller party or if you're an opposition party, you do have a better chance of squeaking in a fifth candidate there. And there's a, a sense from some parties that if the PR system, if we were to take it to its fullest degree that every vote counts, the further down the ballot paper that your vote matters, if you're electing five candidates, there's more chance that someone that you gave a a number six to or a number seven to might be elected. There's also going to be the question, isn't there, of fitting all the extra TDs into Leinster House? Well, they actually, when you look at it, um, they actually have some spare seats. (laughs) So when they have a full sitting of all of the TDs, you'll see there are spare seats there. And the reason why they're there is so that they can essentially extend the number of TDs to reflect the growing population. But I think as part of that, if you look at the parameters they're working in, whereby uh, essentially they can add a minimum of 11 or a maximum of 21 uh, TDs currently it's 160. So at a maximum, it could go up to 180. Now, minus one for the Kian Korla, that would mean you'd have, uh, say, if, if it's going to be 181 minus one for the Kian Korla, that brings you to 180. But it also means your majority would have to go up towards 90. Uh, so it could make the makeup of the next government that little bit more complicated. If, for instance, on a good day that Sinn Féin, according to the polls, could get 60 seats, they'd need to get another 30 from somewhere to make up a government. If it were, they were the largest party after the next general election, as indicated by the current polls. So it could be very interesting and it yeah. could have a lot of implications for forming the next coalition. And there's also speculation, isn't there, that there are a number of TDs that maybe when they read this report from the Boundary Commission, maybe they'll make a decision that they are walking away and not going to fight the fight and maybe a tougher geographical context. There is certainly a sense that a lot of TDs are holding back on what they will do come the next election, depending on the outcome of this review, Um, because they might find themselves squeezed and they might just feel if particularly longer serving TDs might feel that it is an opportune time in which to retire. And we know already, for example, Lisa Chambers, Senator Lisa Chambers has said that she might consider a run for Europe um, depending on what is decided on the European constituencies because we're to gain an extra MEP at the European elections next year and where that seat will will go to could have a bearing on her decision to run. Yeah, and the boundaries may be revised as well with that, isn't that, or, or rejigged slightly? Yeah, there seems to be a consensus growing that maybe the constituency of Midlands Northwest would be the place that would gain that extra seat. And then there could be a review that maybe Leash Offaly could come out of the South constituency, go back into Midlands Northwest, which it was in previously, yeah. and that that would be a nice 
tidy way of of making it up because it do, they do need to try and keep it tidy without overly redrawing the boundaries. Because that Midlands Northwest, I mean, that's such a beast of a constituency. It really, really is. And it was quite difficult for the candidates, wasn't it? I remember the last time around trying to, you know, cover just such a big area and, you know, very diverse interests. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of people keeping an eye on on how this all uh, fares out. I was uh, interested in some comments from the Commissioner Mairead McGuinness in recent days in the Irish Times where she told Naomi O'Leary that she would be keeping a close eye on how that all fared and where the extra seat would go and what impact it might have on that constituency. Now, she's also saying that she'd like to, to serve another term as commissioner. But there is there is a few people wondering if she might consider uh, returning to the European Parliament. But that's very much still in the realm of speculation. But she did say that she'd be keeping a close eye on it. So maybe one for us to keep an eye on too. Absolutely. She faces an interesting choice there because in a sense, she if she's not going to become a commissioner, if she's not uh, therefore what's she going to do? But she's got a strong chance of being re-elected to the European Parliament, given her profile. But in order to do that, she'd have to stand down as commissioner in order to even run. So she's facing a a fork in the road. She's also somebody who's constantly, in terms of the the Aris, and who will be our next president, her name is often mentioned. And one wonders if she does run uh, to be an MEP, is that a way to, to shore up party support once again and, and perhaps better her chances of receiving the nomination for the Auris? Again, we're in the realm of speculation well, here. Well, that's but... three potential cases. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a relief uh, this week, David, hasn't it, that RTE hasn't been making all the headlines. But I'm wondering, is just is this just the intermission or it's hardly over? I, it's not over, but I think there are a few more uh, things to happen in this First thing is uh, Ryan Tuberty, his future, will he be returning to the airways? And then we've these multiple reports, um, which we expect to hear from potentially the first of which would happen next week. The Grant Thornton report into the um, 120,000, which was set aside to be paid to Ryan Tuberty, just to clarify what happened with that. In the committees last week, it was very clear that the new Director General, Kevin Backhurst, um, said he would welcome if Ryan Tuberty were to repay the €150,000, which was the additional payments he had received, which hadn't been disclosed by RTE. And then I think the question is, does that leave the door open for uh, RTE to discuss a potential return to the airwaves um, for Ryan Tuberty? The Director General, Kevin Backhurst, has made it clear that he's received an awful lot of emails on this topic and they're split evenly between people who believe that he should return and people who have another opinion on it. Um, I think if you look at the kind of culpability in terms of the fiasco in relation to the payments uh, to Ryan Tuberty, which hadn't been disclosed, you could say the majority of the blame rests with RTE and maybe a third of the blame rests with uh, Noel Kelly, Ryan Tuberty's agent and Ryan Tuberty himself. But within that axis of Noel Kelly and Ryan Tuberty, I think the majority of the blame would seem to lie lie with uh, Noel Kelly. That's certainly the Mm -hmm. view um, from coming from RTE, judging by what was said at the committees. But however this started, a can of worms got opened up. And that's clearly what we've seen over the the various hearings at the various uh, committees. And that's already having an impact. Minister Catherine Martin uh, confirming this week, for instance, on the numbers of people paying their licence fees. So 
you know, questions of RTE bailout. I know that Taoiseach was talking about this a while ago, but, you know, maybe very much more pressing by the time of the budget. I think there's a few aspects to this. Like, not only do we have a Pandora's box that has been opened, we've actually found there's a whole heap of boxes. And one of the ones I think that is interesting is in relation to the redundancy package which was received by the former chief financial officer in RTE, Brido O'Keefe. I think there's going to be a much broader look at the question of redundancy payments. It's clear from what was said at the committee that two of the people on the executive board were unaware of that package under the deal um, which was offered to people under redundancy. Each deal had to be um, signed off by the executive and in her case that didn't happen and also we know that there was a new uh, chief financial officer appointed so the role itself um, Mm -hmm. wasn't extinguished. Difficult to see how you could extinguish such an important role as that but I think there's lots of other implications particularly on the licence fee as well. Yeah and the unions have been asking questions about all of that haven't they in terms of fairness and and, and standards so uh, we know that the new DG um, is going to be having discussions with Ryan Tarbridi we know that the various reports uh, as you say a number of Pandora's boxes have been opened uh, and more will come on those over the summer but for the moment it's actually been a week when we could sit back and enjoy the football really more than anything weren't they great? They were fantastic. They really were. Yeah, did us proud. Uh, well, you know, it's. I suppose it does seem unusual maybe yeah. to some other countries that we would celebrate uh, a 1-0 loss. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but we're so good at that. And, uh, do you know what? Yeah, but uh, f- in fairness, you know, it, it was such a plucky and spirited performance and, y- you know, up against you know, the best. So fair play. Well, I think what's lovely to see are the street parties, you know, the community get togethers, the bunting. I was listening to Liveline yesterday and there were uh, women put in a shout out for bunting. And next thing, all these people started phoning in saying, you know, I've got bunting and I'll run you up a little. I'll run you up 30 metres of bunting. And it was just fabulous. That sort of channeling the spirit of Italia 90 idea. You were probably too young to remember Italia 90, Tommy, were you? Were <laughs> you there with your tired. little flag? <laughs> Perhaps this is my Italia 90. <laughs> One wonders the impact it could have though on future generations. I mean, it must be great uh, to, to be a young person, a young uh, girl watching this uh, and really seeing and believing now that actually in the future I can very much aspire to be this. They're good leaders yeah, too. In you're a young to person, Tommy. <laughs> young you're our young yes, person. <laughs> you're our young person. We aspire to be Tommy. <laughs> All right, we leave it there. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for watching, listening, however you uh, checked in with us and we'll talk to you again. Bye-bye.